You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have uh, Dr. Martin Dawes, the uh, CMO, Chief Marketing Officer of Genexis, G-E-N-X-Y-S.com. So, Martin, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Very good, Rich. Thanks very much for the invitation. Yeah, and uh, Genexis looks like it's uh, engaged in working with uh, and reducing adverse drug reactions. Is that a very, very short summary of what you do? You put it in a nutshell. In Canada, 27 people are going to die today because of an adverse drug reaction. Uh, multiply that by 10 for the United States. Yeah, we got an epidemic on our hands. So, yeah, I was going to ask you what's the scope of it. So, you know, I read a lot about drug trials, how so many of them fail. And, you know, I've looked a little bit at the structure of some of them. And it seems like, you know, I mean, you can't say if it is, but they seem also to have cherry picked uh, people in the trial because they don't want them to fail. But by cherry picking, you know, you're probably not getting a real representative population. And then when a drug gets out into, you know, the wild and people are using it, I don't see anywhere that the medical companies, the drug companies are gathering data on, you know, use in the clinic and then using that to inform or modify their uh, their drugs. So that's just my speculation. But, but what do you see? What's the cause or causes of this problem? Um, so I see it a bit from both sides. I have a, a lot of time for the pharmaceutical companies. They're uh, really trying to make huge differences. And if you look back over the last 70 years, um, a lot of the improvement in health has come um, because of them. I mean, yes, it's because of socioeconomic benefits as well, clean water, uh, fresher air, uh, more activity, better diet. But you can't take away from the fact that the drug companies have helped significant numbers of people actually can survive longer. Um, but it's really expensive now to produce a drug. And so they are going to be limited a little bit by the ethics committees and others into who they can test the drugs on. And so the randomized controlled trials, the gold standard, will be on people who can understand the ethics, give informed consent, maybe only have one disease because that's the one they're really looking at. And you're right, when it gets into the real world, we don't know what happens. There are post-marketing studies, but the data there isn't really disseminated very widely. And, and absolutely what we need is to think about every patient's data being used to inform the next patients. 
service so that we move away from just big randomized controlled trials to everyone contributing their information to helping others. So why are uh, drug trials so expensive and what do you mean by so expensive? Oh, we're talking about millions and millions. And uh, the reason they're so expensive, I mean, just to do the ethics alone is uh, an expense, but then you've got to record every single thing that happens with a patient. It may be slightly worrying to for the audience, but we don't usually do that in medicine. Um, people will report symptoms, but the number of times we actually document those symptoms and code them and then analyze that is very, very little. So in randomized control trials, they have to document absolutely everything. Uh, they've got to be very careful who they select. They've got to select the hospitals or the physicians or the nurses or whoever's doing the trial. Then they have to analyze the data and it can take years because what you're doing is waiting for the outcomes to happen. And if those outcomes are, are rare, um, so death from cardiovascular disease in a relatively well group of individuals, then you're going to have to follow hundreds of thousands of individuals for five to 10 years. And that's really where the expense hits. Yeah, okay. That makes a lot more sense because I don't know why these uh, would be so crazy expensive, but wow. Hmm. How do you know when... Um a situation may happen where you have to monitor thousands of people, you know, for years, right? The, um, the effects of the drug make it such that uh, you have to monitor a lot more people than you otherwise would. Is there any way to tell on, um, I don't even know what you'd call that factor, but is there any way to gauge on whether that will happen or not with a given uh, trial? Um, not really. I mean, it, if you're going for a drug that's completely new, and there's never been a chemical compound like it tried for this group of individuals. You, you really don't know whether that drug is going to be effective. And there are a series of stages, so, you know, the, the preclinical trials of, yeah, this drug might work. And then the clinical trial of let's test it in a few individuals, just 10 to start with. And then the larger trial and then the big trials looking at harm as well. It is very difficult to know whether you're going to be the drug that gets caught at patient 100,000 or you're going to be the drug that gets caught at patient 10. Uh, if you're lucky, the adverse problem picks up really early. But if it's a very rare but severe side effect, you might be down in tens of thousands of patients before it starts to emerge. And there really is very, at the moment, there is very little way of predicting that. Now, in the future, when we have better ways of looking at data with artificial intelligence, there may be, but that's a big if. What about um, composite medicines? You know, like let's say you take a, a plant medicine, there's all kinds of compounds in the plant medicine, um, but the drugs that we take seem to be, you know, isolated to maybe one chemical or maybe a couple. Is there a, um, does it make it more difficult for a drug company yeah. to create a, a whole bunch of different compounds and test them, or do they avoid that for various reasons? Or? No, we, we the drug companies want the purest form of compound because, uh, I mean, uh, willow bark is a classic example. It's aspirin. Um, but you wouldn't now, you know, take crushed willow bark. You'll go to get aspirin from a pharmacy knowing that you're going to get a tablet of 81 milligrams. I always find that interesting that it's 81 milligrams of aspirin as low-dose aspirin, not 80. You know, having a precise dose means that we are able to predict the effect far more effectively than if you say, well, it's probably between 50 and 150 milligrams. So uh, companies will try and get as precise 
a dose as possible. But you're right. Then there are other things. I mean, the things like the filler of the drug, um, the way that you potentially absorb the drug. And this is where it comes into the, the human element of it. We talk about absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion of drugs. And all those vary in the individual. And the trials are basically average medicine. So we know in an average population, 81 milligrams of aspirin after you've had a heart attack is going to prevent further problems. But an individual, should you be taking the 81 or should you be taking you know, 162? And that information is is really quite difficult to get hold of unless you're doing these huge, huge observational studies. Yeah, why don't they do observational studies to see how men react versus women, how different ethnicities react, how you know people of different ages or weights or answer like conditions? And why wouldn't they do that? Or do they? Well, we should be doing it, um, and we should have pressure put on us to do it. And whenever we give drugs, we should be recording outcomes. Um, patients should be recording outcomes. We should be using that data. It should be publicly available. We should be, you know, within reason and protecting people's privacy. But aggregated data from this sort of thing, from electronic medical records, from other databases, should be widely available. And in some cases, it is becoming available. Um, the UK has led it with primary care, but there are many other institutions now that are sharing this sort of information. It's just that getting the people who have the experience in looking at these large databases, um, it's not straightforward. And I'll give you one common problem. If you look at a database of 400,000 people having particular uh, drug, uh, you will get significance with very small changes just because you've got large numbers of people. So you might say, oh, we saw a one millimeter drop in blood pressure with these 40,000 people. And that's very significant. But hang on a bit. One millimeter mercury drop is maybe not clinically significant. So you have these issues of interpreting the evidence. And honestly, there are not that many clinical epidemiologists around the world who have the experience in doing that. So bioinformatics, as it's called, is the next growth industry in training. And we're developing a lot more master's students, graduates who are going to be able to deal with that data. Yeah, I would think you'd find off-label uses for you know, drugs that the FDA has approved. And why not ask the yep. FDA to approve it for this other use and get more use and more legwork out of the same drug? Why not? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the universities and other organizations are starting to do this. As I say, the, you know, the shortage of those are very paucity of people who have the right skills and training to be able to look at these large data sets. And we've not even touched on artificial intelligence. I mean, this is using classical uh, statistical mm -hmm. methods. There's then this whole new field of machine learning, etc. So what are you seeing as the current state of uh, drug development and then adverse drug reactions and what do you think would be the best ways to start impacting it? So I look at it as a family physician and that, you know, we're getting into the pharmacogenetics and I was doing some work at McGill and, and I thought, oh, this is the next way. This is what we should be using is, is pharmacogenetic information. And then I started realizing that the amount of information we're already having to deal with as a clinician is huge. I mean, it's strangely enough, I mean, if you just talk about three antidepressant drugs, let's say you're talking to a patient about the options, you may have 80 different variables for those those 
drugs that you're meant to be aware of in that conversation with that patient. You know? And I will describe them in its liver function. If your liver is not working as well as it should, then actually one of those drugs, you might need half the dose. Um, maybe you'd like another drug which isn't affected by the liver. And it's that sort of nuance that's really quite hard as a clinician. If we're talking about getting even more information, so people with red hair, uh, whatever, and do better with this group of drugs and that group of drugs. You've got more and more variables. So how are you going to deal with that? And we realized that we could actually create algorithms from all that evidence. And then those algorithms put into a software application then can identify for an individual the, uh, the drug options and can identify very quickly all those issues. And then as a clinician, I can say, looking down this list of actually maybe it's 14 antidepressants, I can see that the three that look like they would really be worth discussing with you. And let's have a conversation with you about those. Well, right now with doctors having uh, five minutes to see you and they didn't even look at you and they're just they're filling in their medical records. I don't know how that's going to happen. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> I mean, but the information required is often within the chart. That's what's interesting. So the renal function is already within the electronic medical record. The liver function is already there. The other drugs they may have tried in the past, their diseases, a lot of that information already exists. And so the physician may be putting in maybe one thing, two things uh, for that individual patient. But this, the software may be taking, I mean, it goes off to an interaction database, maybe taking 1,200 facts from that interaction database to provide the physician within basically a few seconds, the list of drug options. I think that's the sort of technology that we need to be focusing on is how do we deal with information in a clinical setting? It doesn't detract from you and I talking as doctor and patient, uh, but actually helps that conversation. Well, what are some of the, uh, where's the pushback? Is the doctor saying, I don't want a computer telling me what to do? Is it uh, just the lack of the AI being strong enough to help? What are all the confounding factors? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of distrust in things that label themselves as AI. Um, but this isn't really AI. This is taking hard evidence that's already well established. And these are things like, you know, if you've got epilepsy, there are a couple of antidepressant drugs that can actually increase the number of seizures. So I need to make sure I know that you haven't got epilepsy before I can discuss those two drugs. That doesn't require AI. What it does require is the physicians to understand that sometimes you need software to help you. Instead of going and looking all these facts up in textbooks or online databases, um, mm. you need to have something that in your room, in your hand, on your iPad, on your phone, on your EMR that actually can do this for you. And I think it's an early, you know, it's like any technology. It, the early adopters are starting to grab this sort of thing. I can tell you when we started developing, oh, I didn't, but when people started developing drug-drug interaction checkers, um, there was slow adoption. Now, everyone uses those things and doesn't think twice about you know, putting in five or 10 drugs and seeing them. So it's an adoption process. Okay. Um, what part of this whole doctor-patient interaction needs its most? Is it, uh, you know, what about a, I mean, as a stopgap until AI gets there, what about coupling a doctor with a uh, medical researcher? You know, maybe in some cases they have to say to the patient, eh, we got to charge you a little bit more because it's going to take an hour of research from my medical researcher, but I can give you a much better, he can give me a report and I can give you a much better, uh, possibly much better you know, treatment for you. 
I don't think we've got the money. I mean, I think that that would be lovely. And in a way, that's what we actually did. I mean, we sat down and said, okay, imagine exactly that situation. You're with a patient, but there's, you know, 800 facts. Um, and we realized, you know, it takes 400 hours to put together an algorithm for one of these conditions. Um, but once you've done that, once you've put all the information in, then you can put in 20 facts about that patient and the algorithms will run through. They'll list all the drugs that are available for that condition, but they'll then give you additional information about whether you should be considering a lower dose because of reduced kidney function or a um, higher dose because of some other problem or drug interaction. So this drug wouldn't be necessarily the best one to use. But in the end, what we're trying to do is give the physician and the patient all the drug options and the information about those drug options concisely, very, very quickly, so that they can then have the conversation, well, you know, okay, so I need to take a statin, but I'm worried about pain in my legs. Okay, well, let's look at that. And you want to have the time in the consultation focused on the discussion, not on the software. So our aim is to make the software almost in the background so that you don't notice it's there as a clinician or as a patient. So the software would what make suggestions to the uh, practitioner, the medical practitioner, on what to look at, what not to look at, what to consider, or how would it work? Yeah. So, I mean, if you take um, a condition like uh, high blood pressure, there may be 50 or 60 different drugs. So we'll list out those drugs. But then instead of just listing the drugs, you'll list a whole lot of information very precisely. So the physician can say, okay, those are the first line drugs that we might use for a person like you. But this is all for the evidence. This is not us making all this up. This is us taking the guidelines, the literature, and then the physician says, okay, so it looks like uh, for this patient with diabetes, this particular drug would be the ideal one to lower their blood pressure because it has the best benefit. Now let's have a look at the doses and have a discussion with the patient about whether they want to start this treatment um, and you know about potential side effects, etc. So it really is about enabling and being complementary to the conversation about because of your situation, you're going to have to start therapy. Let's discuss which would be the best therapy. So what's um how is the determination made right now by a doctor, you know, generalizing it? And then how do you th what do you think would be different about this under this regime? Okay, so I use my memory at the moment. Um, so classic example of one I completely forgotten, but in our work we actually developed and, uh, when I was actually talking to a lot of family doctors, they'd also forgotten this adverse drug reaction. Um, if you give an antidepressant, an uh, SSRI, it's called, um, there's a slight increase in risk of bleeding uh, with that. A lot of patients with depression ha may have arthritis and are taking a, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, an ibuprofen type drug. Um, and that also increases the risk of bleeding. When you bring the two together, you really increase the risk of bleeding. So what we're trying to do is, and when we talk to family physicians about that, and the software actually identifies that very clearly, and it says, look, if you're going to do this, you ought to protect the stomach um, with a, another drug or avoid the combination or stop the ibuprofen or the other non-steroidal. When we use the software, it nudges my memory. It reminds me of this, that, oh yeah, I'd forgotten that there's this interaction. If I didn't have that, then I might well prescribe the uh, antidepressant with the non-steroidal 
and the patient would run the risk of bleeding. And so this is how software reduces adverse drug events. The classic is the drug-drug interaction software, but that actually tends to happen right at the end of the consultation when you've chosen the drug and you say, okay, we're going to use this particular drug. You put it into your prescribing module in your electronic medical record and up comes an alert. What we wanted to do was bring it right forward in the consultation where the physician, before even having a discussion with a patient, realized that if they did that, he used that drug, then they would have a drug interaction with a possible outcome of bleeding. So changing where the software lies in the consultation as well from the end to the beginning was one of our major initiatives. Why not have uh, an additional checkpoint at the pharmacy? It seems like, you know, my experience is the pharmacy are just, I don't know, they're like, it's like a vending machine. Oh, you need this? <laughs> uh, go, here you go. Have a nice, they know nothing. I mean, they've supposedly been trained, but they know nothing. They say nothing. They like read the label with you. Oh, uh, it says, uh, you know, why not have them use the drug interaction stuff and have it as a, uh, a checklist and have them, you know. They, they do do that. And what happens is they will actually send a fax to the physician and then the physician may change the drug. But instead of having that right at the end, either at the pharmacist or at the end of the consultation, why not bring that information? You know, if that ex information exists, just bring it right to the front and say, okay, you know, for this condition, we know that there are problems with half the drugs. So let's focus on the other half where we've excluded that problem. We know that there aren't any interactions with the non-steroidals the patient's taking and it makes it much easier. You don't want, you want to remove any, any need for the pharmacist to have to check the physician's got it right. Um, there may be other things that the physician may not be aware of. The pharmacist, yes, but they have a role in, and certainly in educating patients and don't take this with grapefruit juice and those sorts of things. Uh, absolutely, we need the pharmacist to be there helping. But the whole aim is to try and improve productivity. And if you rely on people at the end of the chain saying, oh, there's a quality problem here, uh, you wouldn't do that in car manufacturing. So we should think about trying to improve our productivity by having the quality checks done at, the very, at every stage of the process rather than at the end. Yeah, I'm not saying leave it to the end only, but as an additional check. But, you know, if your software, for instance, works really well, then you should have very few, you know, the clinical result, you know, to, yeah. just to make fun is that you should see a lot less faxes back to doctors saying, hey, this could have a bad <laughs> yeah. interaction. You know, But it'd be nice to yeah. have them as the last checkpoint before you walk out the door. Yeah, and there are pharmacists are actually core to our team. So a lot of the work being done in development of the algorithms are done by pharmacists who have expert knowledge in, in the absorption distribution of drugs. Um, they have expert knowledge in pharmacogenetics as well. So they, they are core to this. And, you're, and they are one of our um, key users, in fact, um, that they see the value of this and they're certainly using it. Why not uh, offer a test program, a pilot program where you know, a drug costs a certain amount and the price is subsidized in return for the uh, people taking it, providing certain elements of data. Yeah, I think that's incredibly reasonable approach. I think that why wouldn't pharmaceutical companies want to do that? Um, some of the drugs that we're actually discovering things about, however, have been on the market for many, many, many years and now are off patent. And yet we're still discovering things about how they should be taken optimally. Um, so, but I think, yeah, I think that people providing information should be rewarded. I mean, there is an altruistic part to this. You know, I want to help other people. And that's why 
patients like me, it's been so popular because people want to share uh, to help others. So if I gain some knowledge about the disease through my own experience, why shouldn't I share it with others? Um, but I think incentives are great as well. Do you see, um, you know, the government or the country in which uh, a drug is being put through clinical trials uh, requiring an AI system so that their burden is lessened or at least, you know, they won't be uh, screamed at if the drug doesn't work or if the drug gets out there and then causes all kinds of horrible side effects? Yeah, I think that they are. And there's a, an interesting development happening where drug companies are being paid for the drugs that work. Um, and that, that shifted the mindset. So what I mean by that is some of these really expensive biologics um, where they have an impact on the immune system um, for things like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, they don't work in everyone. Um, and so you're talking about maybe $100,000 of treatment. And the governments and some governments are saying, well, we'll pay you, but only if it actually is demonstrated to work in the patient that was taking the drug. So that is then an incentive, first of all, to target the right people, uh, but secondly, to collect information. So the drug company can then refine that target and say, actually, we've discovered that in people who are, have whatever, um, it, the drug works even better. So we would specifically target those. And we found that if they've got this thing, then it doesn't work at all. So we avoid giving it to them. So I think that process of only paying for when a drug works will really help improve data collection. Well, what about paying for refinements too? Is there any incentive right now for drug companies once they've got a drug through all the hurdles and it's out there in the market? Is there any incentive for them to refine it and find other uses and all that? Or no? And there is a little bit um, where they can say, well, we've discovered that it works in a different group of patients with a different condition. They can then uh, apply a patent to that and extend the increased price. But I think that there would be an interesting discussion to be had for uh, companies who say, we've discovered that uh, in this group of patients, the drug works even better. Um, and then they will be able to charge more for that um, because the likelihood is if it's given to those groups of patients, you're getting much better return on your investment as a government paying for the drug or a provider paying for a drug. So, yeah, I think there is definitely a discussion about improving the, how we identify the patients before we give them the drug. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just, again, speculating, but, you know, what if um, the tax break for the research could be reconstituted and reused? Again, if a drug company agrees yep. to look for other uses of their drug, they would benefit in that. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that there are ways of doing that. A tax break on research, there already are quite significant tax breaks on research, but you could think about other sort of tax breaks or other incentives to help companies. Not just, I mean, it's not about making more money, but it's actually identifying the people in which the drug works better. Um, and that's what we're really talking about. You know, you don't want to give to people where it's going to cause them harm. And you do want to give it to people who are going to get better using that drug. OK, let, let's move from the randomized control trial of 5,000 patients where we've got an average response to collecting this further data. And so that we are able to say, yeah, don't give it to these people. Do give it to those people. Hmm. Um, the adverse drug reactions themselves, are they usually severe? Are they all over the place? Is there any, uh, I don't know, clear reason why they happen or is it just? Yeah, 
it's it, you know this is it's such a fascinating question and you know that the medical model is if the symptom is relatively mild so some nausea um headache then it's categorized as a mild adverse drug reaction however if you were taking an exam that day and you had nausea and headache and it affected your results and those results affected your career you wouldn't say that's a mild side effect that's a life-changing side effect um so there is this balance about how we as individuals uh, recognize the side effects and, and affects us as people and how scientific community looks at them i mean obviously if someone dies from a side effect and people do then we can identify that very easily but this sort of how does it affect you part of a side effect has not really been captured. So we as a group are actually thinking about how we might capture this. So instead of just saying, what side effect did you have? Nausea, dizziness, headache, indigestion. We say, well, how did that affect you? And that would be interesting because if we find that, you know, nausea actually has an impact on people's lives that is way beyond what we might have expected, then we really ought not to be giving or trying to avoid drugs that have been labeled, oh, well, it only gives nausea. Um, so there is some work to be done there about how people react. Going back to the original question of do these drugs, you know, are there very severe side effects? Yes, there are. Um, there are appalling side effects. So drugs used for gout, for example, that can actually cause horrendous side effects. And uh, if you get that reaction, there's a, a 10 to 20% chance you might die from it. Um, it's not very common in white populations. It's more common in Chinese populations, but it's still there. And then there are other loads of side effects, unfortunately, from drugs. What about um, the nature of drugs themselves, the ones that have come out in the last 10 years versus before that? Do they look different? Do they tend to have more side effects or less? And is there a reason why, if so? Uh, that's a really great question. Um, and actually, if you look at some of the older drugs for, say, things like arthritis, they cause a lot of gastric bleeding. Um, we haven't quite got away from that yet. Unfortunately, all anti-inflammatory drugs that are not steroids cause problems. Um, and the newer drugs have other problems. They, these disease-modifying drugs, such as the biologics, which impact your immune system, they don't necessarily cause bleeding, uh, direct impact of a drug on your stomach, but they have other problems. So it's going to be difficult to find drugs that don't cause side effects in individuals. Um, I don't ever see a day where you know, you'll be able to take a cocktail of medications and not have a list of warnings. What we may be able to do through the use of large data sets is be able to say, we have minimized that risk of side effects. And know as, as we move forward with newer drugs, unfortunately, I don't see a reduction in the overall list of adverse drug reactions that they have on their product monograph. Yeah. Has this told you anything about how drugs are conceived and tested and how clinical trials work? Does this tell you that the way all this is done is the best way possible or it's kind of, you know, the cream of the crap? Or I mean, what does it say about the whole process of drug discovery itself? Yeah, we are so much better than we were 100 years ago. I mean, it's unbelievably better. Um, I mean, in many, many respects. Uh, if you just look at human trials, I mean, before the 1950s, there was no or very little ethics consent 
um, patients were uh, just you know, guinea pigs without any consideration to their human rights. You would not expect to see a trial now that didn't have huge amounts of respect, publicized, accessible information about the consent, about the human rights of the people taking part in those trials. Um, we still need people to do trials, no matter how well you design your drug or what sort of clever simulations you use um, with new software, you still eventually have to give that to a human being. And how you do that now is really, really very well protected. So we've moved a long way. Um, are we at the perfect stage? I'm not sure. I think with simulated physiological mechanisms where you actually simulate the whole of the human body, we are going to be able to test drugs um, in those simulations far more effectively than we could, say, 20 years ago. Uh, and that will make it safer for individuals. But the complexity of the human body is just phenomenal. And it's becoming more complex as we start to learn the impact of, you know, we thought, well, you're born with your DNA, that's it. Not a bit of it. Your DNA is changing all the time. It's exposed to radiation and all sorts of other things, diet, nutrition, stress, whatever. It is extraordinary, the complexity of the human body. And so creating a drug that is trying to modify that really complex organism without causing harm is always going to be a really difficult problem, but one that I think science and humans are, are really striving to achieve now in a way that they haven't in the past. Yeah, and the more I learn about, uh, you know, physiology and biology and everything, the, it's so complex, it's like mind-numbing. <laughs> it's <amazing. laughs> it is mind-numbing. You're absolutely right. It's also exciting because science, yeah, if someone has a side effect. If we actually identify that and say, we're going to record it, listen to the person, say, oh, that's discovery. All that, that is exciting because it may help the next person who's taking that drug. So while it, it's mind-numbing and it's complex, it is also exciting. The thought that we can actually help more people with various conditions and more people from getting harm from the drugs they're taking I think is, I mean, that's why we're doing this work, because we are excited about doing that. Hmm. So what do you think is going to be possible in the near term versus longer, you know, the near, the next five or so years, any big sea changes coming, and then maybe longer term, 20, 30 plus, yeah, I, what do you think is going to happen? I think the, uh, so the first thing to say is we always need doctors. However, I think what we'll see in the short term is more and more um systems coming in to actually help doctors. I think you'll have seen information about electronic medical records being data collection tools without really helping doctors, in fact, often slowing them down where they all add the data. Um, as we get better at doing that adding of data and the systems get smarter, I'm gonna, I think we're going to see in the next five years people using their electronic records to really help patients rather than having to think of it as a place I've just got to enter data. Over the long term, I think that we're going to see people having much more control over their health. Um, we're going to see people with really clear diagrams of, uh, and videos and, uh, of how they can improve their health and monitor the improvement in their health. Smart monitoring is already happening with you know, your wearables that record your heart rate, etc. We're going to get more and more of that. So people are able, if they want to record and see how their health is improving, when I take a tablet and can actually see the impact on me 
um, through those wearables, um, I think we're going to be able to refine more and more how we give drugs to people. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Martin, what's the best way for, uh, for folks to get in touch and uh, ask questions or suggest collaboration or, you know, whatever they want to talk about? Yeah, so they can just write to me, martin.doors at genexis.com or info at genexis.com. You can uh, Google me, find me on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, etc. Just reach out to me. Really happy to share um, what we're doing uh, with as many people as possible. That's great. Martin, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. It's a really good conversation. Excellent questions. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.